Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. And the word of God reads, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Italicize there. Many will say to me on that day, that day, it's an important word, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will answer and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those are scary words. Depart from me. I never knew you. Scary, scary words. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, my Lord, Savior, ruler over all things. God, I ask for understanding. And not just for myself, but for my brothers and sisters that will receive your truth. God, just help us to understand you more, your glory, your teaching here. God, may we be instructed to walk in righteousness, to be equipped for every good work. God, open the hearts of all who will hear your truth, Lord. Bring understanding, God. Not just today, Lord, but work through this word throughout the week, Lord. God, that we may just eat off of your teachings, your voice, God. May it fill our souls. May it fill our spirit, God. Lord, satisfy us with your truth, your word. Decrease me, Father. May I present your word in truth accurately. This is prayer, Lord. This is my prayer, God. Amen. Amen. True conversion. Research polls show or say that High 60s, upper 70% of Americans say that they are Christian. And many of us, when we hear that, we gasp like, whoa, that's a high statistic. We say, we say, no way that number can be high. You're talking about seven out of 10 people saying that they are Christian, that that can't be right, right? And we say that can't be right because we, we look at America and it's rampant immorality, it's love of money, it's glorification of sexuality, it's high divorce rate, it's materialism, and the list goes on and on and on. And we say most of America really cannot be Christian, right? Because if most of America was really Christian, then there would be a lot more peace in America. There would be less division in America. There would be a lot more love in America, but we don't see that. And I believe that the people in those polls that are claiming Christian identity are more likely than not people who may have grown up going to church. Because there was a time in America when that is what you did, saved or unsaved, you went to church. Or maybe they believe that they're Christian because 
their mom is a Christian and their grandpa is a Christian and their cousin's a Christian. And so they just believe by association and that maybe I am a Christian. So they claim those terms. But one of the biggest reasons why I believe that America is delusional about its Christian identity is largely due to bad teaching, that easy believism, the sinner's prayer as a type of formulation that if you just say these magic words in this right order, then then you are saved and thus a Christian. See, the sinner's prayer and its many variations has been like a, a magical formula for people to repeat. It's been very toxic and ineffective because we have many people in our society believing that they are saved, that Jesus Christ is their Lord because they said a prayer one time when they were a little kid. The sinner's prayer is not a bad prayer if it's said and done with godly sorrow. With true repentance. See, there were some that came to the altar when when Billy Graham gave his multiple sermons and they came with a true heart. Godly sorrow, repented and turned from their sins or even right now still trusting Jesus. But there were many that came forward and just made a verbal statement that just said words. And there are many in our churches, people who've come forward and signed a new membership agreement and signed a church covenant and said that I am now a Christian. But they were all just words. They said the word Lord, Lord to Jesus. But Jesus was not really their Lord, Lord, because to say Lord, Lord. As Jesus says in the first verse, not everyone will say to me, Lord, Lord, we're into the kingdom. To say, Lord, Lord, means that somebody is master and somebody is servant. It means that somebody gives rules and teachings and, and somebody obeys. It means that somebody's will is bent towards carrying out the will of another. To say, Jesus, you are my Lord, is to say, Jesus, you have rule and authority over me. It's not just a cute little statement that we say, but those words are heavy. That is why when you, you go throughout the New Testament on the pages of Scripture, you often find the Apostle Paul and others starting off their letter with Paul, doulos, in Greek, which means servant or slave. And in many of our translations, you, you have the word doulos, but it's translated as bond servant of Christ. For example, Romans 1.1, Paul starts off by saying, Paul, a bond servant of Christ. Philippians 1.1, he says, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus. Jude 1, Jude says, Jude, a bond servant of Christ Jesus. Peter, 2 Peter 1.1, Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. In Galatians 1.10, Paul says, For am I seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men... I would not be a bond servant of Christ. See, these men were, these individual writers, they were obsessed with Jesus. 
that this is how they identified themselves in the opening of their letters. This is me, Paul, a bond servant. It's kind of like me. If I, if I went to a party and I introduced myself, hi, my name is Jerome, husband of Esmeralda Wade. Hi, my name is Jerome, husband of Esmeralda Wade. Hi, my name is Jerome, husband of Esmeralda Wade. You would say, this guy is obsessed with his wife, <laughs> right? You would say he, he loves his wife. That is the same thing that we find with Paul and the other apostles. They say, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, he is in love with Jesus. He wants the world to know I serve Jesus. See, the difference between a, a bond servant or a bond slave that says, Lord, Lord, and a regular old person that just says, I'm a servant. A bond servant, they intentionally wanted to serve their master. It wasn't forced upon them. Many servants in, in the first century, they were indentured servants or they were captured through war. And so they were forced to, to serve and they could work off their uh, servitude. But um, many would be servants. But a, a bond servant is, is kind of like Exodus 21. It's that servant that says, I love my master, and so I want to serve him even though I am allowed to go free. That is what Paul and the apostles mean when they say that they're bond servants. It's not against their will they're saying. No, they're saying, I intentionally, I want to serve the Lord. That is why they say that I am a bond servant. Now, outside of the formulaic sinner's prayer and easy believism, one of the other reasons that many people are led to believe that they are servants or are followers of Jesus and have this salvation and will be entered into this kingdom of, of God is because maybe God has answered some prayer that they prayed up. Maybe because they received some blessing and they say, oh, because I received this blessing or I received this prayer. That means that me and God are good. I've, I've talked to so many people They say, I know the Lord. He blessed me the other day. He, he, he did this for me the other day. And they base their salvation on some act that God has done in their life. But my brothers and sisters, you cannot base your salvation on blessings alone. You cannot base your salvation on something that you have prayed about and it happened. And that means that me and God are good and I have a right relationship. Why can't you do that? Because if you remember a little while back, we discussed something called common grace. Common grace. Remember in Matthew 5 where, where Jesus said God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That is called God's common grace. That even when you don't deserve it, God is good. And so he does good things to all of creation. That is called God's common grace. Just because blessings come to you does not make you a follower of Christ. Does not make you or does not determine that you have a relationship with God. That doesn't determine that. In the book of Hosea, matter of fact, in uh, chapter 2, verse 5, I want to show you something that speaks to that. If you can. Hosea, it's a small book, but I'll go there for the sake of time. But I want to read you this about what Hosea said to the house of the kingdom of Israel and their idolatry with God or towards God. They were worshiping other false gods. In Hosea 2.5, look what Hosea says to the kingdom of Israel and their idolatry. He says this, he says, for their mother has played the harlot. 
she who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, meaning these other gods, these false gods, these idols. I will go after my lovers. Look, who gave me my bread and water. Now she's claiming that these false gods, these idols, has given her her bread and her water. They've given me my wool, my flax, my oil, and my, and my drink. Now skip down to verse 8. Look what God says about the house of Israel and their idolatry. About all these blessings that they have been receiving, this goodness. He says, for she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold. Do you see what's happening here? The house of Israel has received this blessing. They received goodness coming to them. But they were not in a right relationship with God. It's just that God is good, God is merciful, and God is kind. See, they were not in the right relationship with the Lord, even though these things were good that were happening to them, even though they had their, their oil and their wine, even though they had things coming to them, that did not mean that them and God were good. Because as you keep reading about the house of the kingdom of Israel, guess what? That northern kingdom gets destroyed, even though they were receiving this good stuff. So we, we cannot base our salvation, we cannot base that I am saved, I know the Lord and I am entering into his kingdom based on just blessings alone. We can't do that, my brothers and sisters. It's not based on just that. So if blessings and answered prayer alone is not the sure sign of my salvation, if formulaic sinner's prayer is not the proof, what is the proof? to my relationship with Jesus, to my eternal salvation. Among other things, such as possession of the Holy Spirit, proof, regeneration, change in affections for God the Father and Jesus, desires for holiness, seeing the fruit of the Spirit manifest in your life, among other things, evidence of our salvation. And I want to define salvation because I realize sometimes as Christians, we speak in Christianese. And, and what I mean is we start using all of these words like justification and righteousness and we say it to unbelievers who have no idea what those terms mean. And, and we say salvation and they're like, salvation what? And so when I say salvation, I'm talking about the rescue from the bondage of sin and God's wrath to be restored to a right relationship with God and thus have life and the life to come or the eternal kingdom. That salvation among other things, is evidence by obedience to the teaching and commandments of Jesus, which is the will of God. And this is not a new teaching. That faith as demonstrated through obedience, this is not a new teaching that Jesus is talking about here. God has required this from the beginning. We find this on the first pages of the Bible. You go to Genesis with Adam and Eve. They're told not to eat, but they eat. They are disobedient. And what happens? They get kicked out of the garden, out of God's presence. Why? Because they were disobedient. You keep going further in the Old Testament. Where you come to 1 Samuel 15 with King Saul and Samuel. And Saul is rebuked by Samuel. Why? Because Saul was given a commandment to utterly destroy Amalek, but he chooses to save the choice livestock so that he can sacrifice to God. And what does Samuel tell him in verse 22 of that chapter? 
Samuel tells him, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Jeremiah 7.23, the Lord said, but this is what I commanded them, saying, obey my voice and I will be your God and you will be my people and you will walk in all the ways which I commanded you that it may be well with you. See, Jesus is not looking for people to be mesmerized by his teaching so that they can put them on the shelf with all of the other great philosophers, uh, the Nietzsche's, the Trotsky's, the Karl Marx, the Socrates. He's not looking for people who can just quote his teachings in the Greek and Hebrew, but he's looking for disciples who will keep the father's will just as he has kept the father's will. That is why our Lord says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom, but he who does the will of my father. That is what God is looking for. Just look at the B portion of the Great Commission of go ye therefore, Matthew 28, 19 to 20, go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations. But what should we do with that disciple who has been reconciled to God through faith, whose sin who has been atoned for at the cross? The verse says to teach them to obey all. Jesus said all things that I have commanded him. Meaning how you ought to treat your wife, how you ought to treat your children, how you ought to spend your money, how you ought to use your time, how you ought to treat your neighbor, the poor, etc. That's the will of the Father. That is how we ought to be. That is how we ought to act. Now notice in this text... Jesus, he says, will enter the kingdom of God. And then he says in 22, on that day. Notice that our Lord, he's speaking about future events, future terms. In 22, he says, on that day. What day is he talking about? The day of judgment. Because it's going to be a day when God will judge the world through Jesus Christ. Isn't that what Paul told the pagans at Mars Hill in Acts 17, verse 31? Do you remember when he stood up there in Acts 17, 31? And he says, God has fixed a day, the same thing that Jesus says on that day. Paul says to the pagans, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So there is coming a day of judgment. And those who will enter into the kingdom of God, to the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, those who do the will of my father. He said that is their reward to be with God forever in his kingdom. See, that is what this entire sermon on the mount has as its aim has as its end result or the goal of obedience to this. It is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. That is what this whole sermon has as its target and aim. The kingdom of heaven. You see that in the beginning of this sermon in chapter 5. What is the first beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit. What is the reward? What is the result? For theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Same thing that Jesus is talking about here in 7. As you keep going down in his sermon on the mount in the beatitude, 
Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. He's hammering it down. This is the aim. This is the goal, the kingdom of heaven. If you look down in 19 to 20, he says, Whomever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps them and teaches them, guess what? They shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, guess what? You will not enter what? The kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven. It's all throughout the sermon. We look at the model prayer. We pray your kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom. Come. And now in seven, again, he's saying, he's teaching about entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven. See, the kingdom of heaven language, this is like Jewish eschatology language. And when I say eschatology, remember, this is end time language, end times, the end of the world, the new heavens, new earth, any type of that teaching about that in uh, theological circles, that's called eschatology. This kingdom of heaven language that Jesus is using, it's, it's Jewish eschatology language. See, the Jewish people are not confused when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. Notice that when John the Baptist began to preach, telling people to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, it wasn't like the people are saying, what kingdom of this are you talking about? No, the people were coming, the, the Pharisees, I'm mean, not the Pharisees, but the, uh, the, the, the harlots, they were, they, they were coming and they were repenting of their sins because they were anticipating the coming of the Messiah and the coming of God's kingdom where in this kingdom he would destroy the wicked and only the righteous would dwell and all of their enemies would be overthrown. So when Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven, they get the language. They understand what he's talking about. We see that in Mary's Magnificat in Luke 1. Where she's beginning to worship God because of the Messiah who's going to come and redeem and save his people. You see it in Zechariah's prophecy in Luke 1, 67 through 79. And if you read through the entire book of Isaiah, you see it all over the place. You see this judgment come. You see this Messiah, this Savior that's going to redeem Israel and be a light to the nations and bring salvation to the nations. See, they're looking forward to this kingdom, this kingdom of heaven that will come. So the kingdom of heaven, this is like the eschaton, the new heavens and new earth to the Jewish mind. And one of the things that I hope to do next year, I won't say next year, right? It's like two days, right? Next year is I'm hoping to preach on the gospel and the gospels. The gospel in the gospels. Because one of the things that has bugged me a lot in my Christian walk early on, is the gospel, right? We say the gospel is the atonement for our sins. It's Jesus Christ dying on our on a cross for our sins. That atonement theology. But when I read the actual gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I don't see a heavy atonement theology presence. I see a heavy atonement theology presence in Paul's letter. But what I see more in the gospels is kingdom of heaven or God language. And these two merge together. These two have, these things, they're one and the same. They're, they're, they're the same thing, but I, I, I don't see that heavy there. And so I, I really hope to preach the gospel and the gospels. I know theologians have debated this. I think John McCarthy wrote a book called The Gospel and the Gospels. 
Um, N.T. Wright has a book called When God Became King about the gospel and the gospels. And so uh, I really want to get into that because that helps us to understand this kingdom of heaven language that Jesus is often using. You even look at Mark 1, 4, where it says the time is fulfilled. I'm sorry, 1, 14, where Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Notice that the subject of the gospel in Mark 1, 14 is the kingdom. So what does this kingdom have to do with our atonement theology? They go together. And so that is something that I hope that we could uh, look at and discover more as we get into next year. But nonetheless, Jesus shows us here in our main text that entrance into the kingdom is accomplished by those who do the will of the Father. And if you notice our Lord, he hammers this point down even five chapters later in Matthew 12, 50, where, when Jesus is speaking to the crowd and they tell him, Jesus, your, your mother and your brother are outside seeking to speak with you. And Jesus says, who is my mother? Who is my brother? For whoever does, again, the will of my father who is in heaven, this is my brother, sister, and mother. Jesus is hammering home this point. Doing the will of God. Doing the will of the Father. Doing the will of God. Ecclesiastes would say that this is the whole duty of man. To fear God. Keep his commandments. Now when our Lord says here in this text to doing the will of God. He's not talking about some hidden will that has not been revealed to you. The will of where I'm going to live or who I'm going to marry or what career I'm going to have. Not that will that has not been revealed to you, but God's revealed will through Scripture. God's revealed will through what Jesus is teaching here on this sermon. That is why our Lord said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. He's talking about the words that he's preaching, his teaching here in a sermon. That is the will of God. And my brothers and sisters, when we talk about God's will, it's not just the super spiritual stuff of taking the gospel to all of the ends of the earth or being a frontier missionary like the Apostle Paul. But it's the everyday practical righteousness, practical right living. One of the places where this to me is, is highlighted is in Isaiah 33, verse 15 through 16. I want to read you this. It's kind of it's a it's judgment language, apocalyptic language, but I want you, I want you to see this here. This is Isaiah talking about God, the Savior again, this one coming through and burning up all of the the wicked, the godless, the unrighteous, and only the righteous dwelling. And look what he says here about that type of righteousness that we ought to practice. Isaiah thirty three, and uh. Matter of fact, I'm starting verse 14 and come down. He says this sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. This is when God's destruction is coming upon the world. He says, who among us can live with the consuming fire? This is what the sinner who is trembling in Zion. This is what they're saying. Who among us can live with this consuming fire? They're asking the question, who among us can live with continual burning? Look what Isaiah says, who can live with God? Look what he says here in 15. He says, he who walks righteously, guess what? And speaks with sincerity. He who rejects unjust gain 
and shakes his hand so that they hold no bribe? He who stops his ear from hearing about bloodshed and shuts his eye from looking upon evil? 16. He will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be the impregnable rock. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Notice that Isaiah is not talking about any super spiritual stuff here. He's talking about just practical, everyday righteousness. About being sincere in your thoughts. About not taking a bribe. He's talking about just, just practical righteousness, everyday living, keeping the will of God. He says they are the ones who will dwell with God. The one who's not out there gossiping. The one who's, who, whose ears, he says he, his ears been stopped from bloodshed. Whose eyes are not looking upon evil to do evil or even be a part of it. He said, that's the one that will dwell with the Lord. That's practical, everyday righteousness. See, one of my concerns for the church at large, talking about universal, is that we elevate or emphasize certain teachings and commandments of Jesus and neglect his other teachings. When we do that, we become like the Pharisees that Jesus scolded in Matthew 23, 23, who were good at keeping the tithing, but they would neglect the other weightier issues of the law. When, when we pick and choose different things to carry out, we become just like these Pharisees. When I was last here teaching, I talked about how the church has historically prioritized evangelism and Matthew 28, 19, over Matthew 7, 12, of treating others like we want to be treated. As if conversion is the only thing that brings God glory and that he delights in. And this is highlighted by the American evangelical church in the 60s and segregation and Jim Crow. My brothers and sisters, it is not conversion or nothing that brings God glory. Psalms 33, 5 says that the Lord loves righteousness and justice. So that means that, yes, the Lord delights when I go and I share my faith. But guess what? The Lord also delights, guess what? When I'm walking in righteousness, when I'm being just in my ways, when I'm being an advocate for others, when I'm showing justice to others, see, that also brings delight to the heart of the Lord. I think about what Job said, how he broke the jaw of the wicked and snatched the prey from their teeth. So along with our questions when we're keeping one another accountable of did you share the gospel with anyone should be did you go to your kid's soccer game? Did, did you take your wife out on a date? Did you pray with your wife and kids? See, all of this is the will of God. Men, we have to lead our families in all ways. That's all the will of God. These are the things we have to consider. And we find ourselves like the Pharisee only emphasizing certain aspects of God's law, thinking that we're doing God's will when we're neglecting a whole another aspect of God's will over here. Now at a cursory glance of Jesus' teaching here, one could conclude that hold on, Jesus is teaching salvation by works. I can see some saying, see, there it is. Jesus said that those who enter the kingdom of heaven must do the will of God. We are not saved by grace, but we must earn it. Well, as we have already discussed before, the teachings of Jesus here in this sermon, they have their foundations in the law. 
And as we know, the law goes contrary to our human nature. That's Romans 7. So the only person that can keep the law of Christ is teaching here, which he's teaching here on his sermon, is a person who has been made alive by the Spirit of God. So to obey God and to keep his commandments, thus the will of God, this is accomplished through an act of God's grace and regeneration where we get new minds and new hearts with a desire to keep his commandments. That's Philippians 2.13, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to, and to uh, work his good pleasure. See, in other words, it's Ephesians 2.10, which says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So in Christ, we become new creatures. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any person be in Christ, he is a new creature. We become this new creature who is now allowed and able to keep the will of God. So no, it is not salvation by works. The only way that we can do these good works, the only way that we can do the will of the Father is by God's grace and regeneration of the Spirit. So it is not by works. So we have to walk keeping the will of God. We have to do it. Evidence of our salvation, as I mentioned among the other things, is that we practice righteousness. Is that we walk in a light. This is the evidences. These are the proofs that I have been born again, that I know Jesus. It's doing the will of the Father. It's walking in light, walking in truth. This is what the entire book of 1 John is largely about. Walking in truth with God. I think about uh, what, what is the teaching that they had in 1 John? There was a teaching called Docetism. This is what John, in, in 1 John, this is what he was battling. There was this, this teaching called Docetism. And in, Doc, in Docetism, it meant that all matter, all flesh is bad. And because all matter and flesh is bad, as long as your spirit and your soul was right, it didn't matter what you can do in your flesh. And so that's why John, he's, he's writing this letter in 1 John. He's, he's combating this, early, this, uh, this heresy of early Gnosticism and Docetism where they just thought that as long as my spirit and my soul is right, it didn't matter my walk and how I lived. Because my flesh was bad. And, this, and one of the, the, the teachings of the Gnostic was that Jesus couldn't have come in the flesh because flesh is bad. And so God cannot come in this bad flesh. And so they, they had this teaching that only the spirit and the soul was right. As long as that was right, it didn't matter how you lived. And so John says in 1 John, if we say that we have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, he says we lie. This is why he's writing this. And do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. In chapter 2, he also says this, By this we know that we have come to know him, know God. How? If we keep his commandments. We've come to know that we know God, how he says, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, the will of God, the will of the Father, what Jesus is teaching in our Sermon on the Mount, he says, is a liar and the truth is not in him. 
Same thing Jesus is saying. Keeping the will of God. Jesus said, it's not you just saying the Lord Lord's to me. It's not you just making this profession. It's not that you just said this sinner's prayer, but that you do and keep the will of my Father. Do and keep what I'm teaching you. Now, I like how our Lord in this last part of this teaching of this text, our main text I'm talking about, Matthew 7. Our Lord in this last part of the verse, 22 to 23, he elevates or he shows us the importance of obedience over the gifts and the spectacular. So our Lord Jesus in this text, he's going to show us how obedience is more spectacular than the gifts. Now, I know when we read this text, 22 to 23, in Christian circles, we like to debate, oh, did Judas Judas perform any miracles, right? As soon as we read this text, how Jesus says that that people in here said that, oh, we prophesied in your name, we cast out demons in your name, we perform many miracles. Uh, The debate starts with believers. We start saying, I wonder, did Judas do any of these miraculous things? That's always where I hear the, the debate going. But I believe that's missing the point. I believe that's missing the point. Now, to, to wade into this Judas debate, I don't have anywhere in Scripture that says that he didn't do it. Um, it from the Scriptures that I read, the 12 all were doing the miraculous things. And so I, I don't have any Scripture to say that he didn't do it. And I look in the Old Testament and I see how, and Jeremiah, how, how God used Nebuchadnezzar for his purposes. And I look how God used Cyrus, called him a servant, and, and used him to be kind to um, Israel. So I, I don't, if God could use whoever he wants and how he wants for his purposes, if, if God wants to use whoever to bring a healing to a belief, I, I, God could use however he wants, whatever means that he wants to accomplish his purpose. So that, that's my understanding and take on it. But again, the point that I believe that our Lord is showing us here when he says that you have performed and done all of these miraculous and spectacular things is that that's great. But the question is, how is your obedience to the Lord? See, that's that's great that God has given you the gift of healing. That is great that God has given you the gift of prophecy. That is great that you can go and preach down the house. But the question is, how is your walk? And that is this issue or the, the, the thing that Jesus highlights. He doesn't lift up the spectacular or the miraculous over everyday obedience. Great, you've done the miraculous things. But the question is, are you keeping the Father's will? Are you loving your neighbor? Are you loving your wife? Are you leading your family? That's great you can preach the house down. That's great you can prophesy. But but are you keeping the will of God? See, Jesus, by this text to me, he, he lowers the playing field. He evens out the playing field because sometimes we can go and look at the Francis Chans of the world, the, the John Pipers, the John MacArthur, the, the Beth Moores, and we can begin to covet their gift thinking, oh, if I can just speak like them, oh, if I can just do the things that they're doing. But that's not what Jesus says here. He says the, the one who's going to enter is not just the one that's doing the miraculous things or has the gifting, but it's the one who does the will of my Father. That's something we all can do. We all may not be able to preach like John Piper, but we could keep the will of God. 
We all may not be able to be like Paul going to just countries and countries sharing the gospel and, and just seeing so much of God's work, but we could do the stuff that Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. We can watch our anger with our brother. We can watch our eyes so we don't lust after other people. That's, you know, not our wives and our husbands. We could love our children. We can make our yes mean yes and our no mean no. See, we can do all of those things. We could not be judgmental. See, these are all the things that we can do. These are all the things that's the will of God. These are the things that you can do, my brothers and sisters. Don't get so caught up in the miraculous gifts. The question is, are you living according to the will of God? Are you keeping His Word? Jesus says in the ending of this text, to those who were not keeping the will of the Father, who were not keeping His commandments, He says, depart from me. I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. Meaning you who live as with no law, as with no obedience to God. See, from the reading of this text, the the people in the scripture, they may have had some radical experience with God. Like so many people who've had these radical experiences, these these crazy out-of-body experience. But when it all comes down to it, are you keeping the will of the Father? Are you living according to the Lord? That's great. You had a great sign and a great vision. But are you doing the will of the Father? That is one of the surest assurances, if you will, of salvation. Am I walking in the light? Am I keeping the commandments of God? Am I not not just calling Jesus Lord, Lord, but am I living Lord, Lord? That is what our Lord instructs us on. Keeping the will of God. He said those will enter into the kingdom, the eternal kingdom, the new heavens, the new earth. It's those that keep that. So there's many things in our world to be consumed with in our minds. So many things we worry about. But think on God's commandments. Think on, am I living out his word? Or am I just mesmerized by his word? Do I live out this word in my daily life? This is not perfectionism we're talking about, but having a regular practice of righteous living and holiness is something we're called to do. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word. God, remind us of this truth as we go go throughout the day, throughout the week, reminding us to serve you, to be about your will, your business, to be a light in the world for you, bringing glory to your name. God, by your spirit, help us to keep all of your teachings, all of your commandments, Lord. God, we look forward to that day of being with you in the eternal kingdom. You are Lord. Oh God, it's in Jesus' name. Amen.